women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello, and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about and with the change-making women of Princeton University. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and I'm talking today with Jennifer Epstein, class of 08. Jen was the editor of the Daily Princetonian, also known as The Prince, while she was an undergraduate. After leaving Princeton, Jen worked for several print publications, including Time Magazine, before joining the digital news platform Politico. She covered the 2012 presidential campaign of Barack Obama, then moved to Bloomberg News a few years later, where she was assigned to cover the campaign of Hillary Clinton. She's now White House correspondent for Bloomberg. And Jen, thank you very, very much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Margaret. I really appreciate it. We are delighted. So it's an incredibly fascinating, intriguing time to be covering the White House, to be covering national politics. (laughs) Can you tell me if it's like the television show The West Wing? Uh, it's pretty different from the West Wing. One, there's so much discussion of concrete policy on the West Wing and policy fights and pieces of legislation getting voted on and passed and signed into law. There's very little of that actually happening in this Washington. Um, it's mostly just, you know, the political mudslinging, which there certainly is an aspect of that in West Wing. I would say there is, at least for, for me as a w- reporter, there isn't a ton of the walking, talking, intense conversations happening. Uh, and I, I, one one big difference from the show is kind of, at least th- that I'm aware of, is is not such a you know cozy relationship between say the press secretary and uh, a reporter. <laughs> now that's really interesting because yeah. on the one hand you'd think, or you might imagine, certainly uh, on the West Wing we had a woman press secretary and there was a lot of collegiality. Right. Uh, you'd imagine that there could be that kind of rapport, but not at all, huh? Yeah, not not with this administration. I mean, I, I think that Sarah Sanders. Uh, you know, has relationships certainly with some people in conservative media, some people from sort of more more mainstream outlets, but it is not not a friendship kind of a thing. And I don't don't know that it should be with any between any White House and any press corps. But uh, it's it's definitely a kind of thing where you might bump into somebody at a party, but you're not sticking around and having a long conversation. On some level, there's perhaps progress in that because they're, they're, the White House and the uh, Washington Press Corps has been criticized in the past for being very insular and very chummy. Right. Is it a good thing maybe that there's more distance? Yeah, I mean, I still think it is extremely insular, extremely chummy that there are, um, you know, a lot of reporters who, you know, just kind of think about the people in their immediate universe as their audience and don't actually think that much about all the readers or all the viewers who are hearing what they're saying. Um, and I think that that sometimes can get lost and, and maybe the current era we're in will help remind people that there are a lot of different kinds of audiences out there and there are a lot of different uh, people who are listening to whatever you do uh, and, to, and to keep that in mind and what you produce and how you think about it and what kinds of questions you ask and that you know not everybody's the same as you, whatever you are. Where did you get, did, did Princeton help in any way you develop that perspective beyond um, uh, you know, people such as yourself? Yeah, it definitely did. I, I was on the staff of the Daily Princetonian from the very beginning. I started you know, the first couple of weeks of my freshman year and was on it all the way through. And one of my earliest assignments was uh, to go down Witherspoon Street uh, to where, at least back then, 2004, there was a little bit of a, a, a Latino immigrant neighborhood, um, 
and to, to talk to, about some of the, there were some ICE raids that had been going on there, or maybe it wasn't even called ICE then, I'm not sure, but there were some immigration raids that were happening um, there, and to talk about, kind of get people to talk about how they were feeling and what kind of fear they had, um, and it was also one of the first times that I used my like middling Spanish skills in a reporting context, which I've subsequently done from time to time. Um, I covered the family separation policy over the summer and did the, was able to use those skills that were a little rusty. But uh, you know, but those kinds of assignments that I got from from early on and things that I found on my own, uh, the stories I did really really helped. I think more than any class I took. Um, at, at, at finding perspective and I think it's you know continued throughout my career it's just every time you know a lot of times I do get stuck in in kind of the bubble of the White House or a campaign but then when I do get to do something like covering family separations uh, and go to the border in Texas and talk to a mother who's been separated from her kids and can't get them back because she's being accused of being in MS-13 that those those kinds of stories are you know, like a like a reminder that the, these things are bigger than just these fights that get fought out on Twitter. Sure. What what, what is MS thirteen? Just oh, it's it's uh, this transnational gang. Back to the White House, if I can, yeah. for a second. You've been there during so many incredibly interesting stories. Um, I can't think. I mean, the list goes on. But one of them being the Me Too movement. Did that change the way you do your job, or the way people were looking at you as a journalist, or how did you process that professionally? You know, I think it, it has made my editors actually a little bit more interested in stories about women. I mean, I think it's also been with the for for us in covering politics, it's kind of fit with the with the huge surge in the number of women running for office in the past year and a half, and that there's just been a more attention and a desire to uh, tell those stories, not incredibly frequently because we don't do a ton of that kind of journalism at Bloomberg, but to sometimes uh, get into a story about uh, members of Congress who are really active in fundraising for women who are running for office for the first time or have started their own PACs, people like Kamala Harris and Kristen Gillibrand who who are really active in that and those kinds of stories we are doing now, I think a little bit more than I even got to do when I was covering Hillary Clinton, who, you know, was running to be the first female president of the United States. There was a little less of a of a gender focus for us because, again, we were mostly focused on either the horse race or how or policy th- proposals that she had. And she had many, many policy proposals yeah, yeah. Um, and how those would affect markets and um, companies and, and overall federal policy. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, of course, Bloomberg is primarily a news uh, outlet for business news, so we have to be very aware of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about you know another huge trend or n- new term in the news is fake news. Um, we know that the media is getting uh, um, splattered with that constantly. How does that affect your ability to do your job? You know it. I think of the fake news. Fake news is actually um, some of the like content farm kind of stuff that is not reported, that is made up. I'm not going to name names of outlets that are, you know, intentionally putting out conspiracy theories or made up information or things that have not been substantiated in any way. So I do think that there is something uh, that is bad and dangerous out there. I think that sometimes 
mistakes or misreported stories can be can be, be are an easy target. I mean, there's certainly times when you know there's been a story. Uh, I'm thinking something that ABC News did a while ago that then was ultimately corrected, and then President Trump went after that and went after that reporter. This was maybe even a year ago at this point, um, and gives gives easy targets. And sometimes that happens that that members of the media sort of you know in their own slip ups, which happen in any anybody other than this White House. I think it sometimes acknowledges that they've made mistakes. Yeah, and. And you know, as I think this president has made clear, he doesn't do that. Yeah. Because if you apologize, then you have vulnerabilities, and then it just kind of spirals from there. And instead, if you just you know act as though you never do anything wrong, you aren't. When people try to hold you accountable, you don't even you don't think that that system of accountability is even relevant. It's yeah. just so outside the. You're so you know beyond that box. Yeah. No, I see that. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, you've been in journalism about 10 years, I yeah. think, is that right? Yeah. And in that time, we've seen a kind of a crisis of legitimacy across the piece in our political system. Journalism has, has been subjected to a lot of suspicion um, by, by the president, by others. Um, but that's not it. That's not alone. I mean, all, all the branches of government. In fact, you and I were lucky enough very recently uh, to, to sit in on a session with Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, two other illustrious Princeton alumna. And uh, I just wonder what your take-home message from that was. Well, I think that they are both concerned uh, about where the court is going and where the country is going. Um, uh, Justice Kagan talked about her worry that there, and I, wouldn't, I guess I'm characterizing it as a worry, she didn't quite put it this way, but she commented that in the past, 30 years or so, Sandra Day O'Connor, and then with Justice uh, Kennedy, there was a, a middle vote who often was a swing, and you couldn't tell where the whole court was going. You were, you know, people, reporters and other other analysts would, you know, study Kennedy's body language and, you know, look for <laughs> yeah. clues to figure out how's he gonna gonna rule on this. Um, and it does seem like with the with the new direction of the court uh, that there will not be a vote like that anymore, and that that or that that somebody will have to shift into that could potentially be the chief justice who has uh, on some issues been sort of the divide deciding vote. Um, but uh, it does seem like we're in a in a situation where, as I think Heather Gerken, the who was moderating that panel, said, you know, I think you guys are going to be writing a lot more dissents uh, <laughs> yeah. in the years ahead. And and I think that that is the reality that we're not that when a big case is at the Supreme Court, have a pretty good sense of which direction it's going to go in before it's even, uh, you know, been argued. Let mm. let alone you know, there's been arguments and we're waiting for it on, uh, toward the end of June. Um, and I think that the the justices spoke to that in a way that was very cautious and very, um, you know, they're certainly very clearly not commenting on their new colleague Brett Kavanaugh, uh, but they were. Uh, Making clear that that there is a certain collegiality that has existed at the court in the in its current era that they hope to see continue. Yeah, yeah, and they did raise questions of the continued legitimacy of the court, which I found kind of striking. Um, Justice Kagan um, left that as a hypothetical whether that legitimacy was going right. to continue. Right, and they also talked a little bit about I think I think it was Justice Kagan who brought it up the idea that you know there's no 
army forcing people to abide by anything this court rules there is just an understanding throughout the land that this is the highest court and that whatever kind of enterprise you're in you follow what 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 they rule I'm kind of curious. I mean, as I say, I, I think the, the it's obvious that uh, journalism as a as a profession has been subject to a lot of scrutiny and and um, a lot of suspicion about the legitimacy of journalists as, as as well as these other institutions. Is there a role for journalists such as yourself or for journalism as a profession to to do more than just report on that phenomenon, but to try to uh, fix it? Yeah, I mean, the challenge with that is sometimes that it could, that it could come off as as shift away from impartiality that if you're if you're trying to fight for free press that that is you know perhaps seen by some as opposed to this administration's values and if you're covering this administration can you be part of a certain kinds of a first amendment fight uh that's kind of an an interesting question that i don't know that a lot of people have really thought about or tackled I think that there is you know even if you look at the Washington Post democracy dies in darkness uh, they they started using that slogan in early 2017 yeah not in early 2015 or and yes they had a change in ownership but it was a response to how the president talks about the press right and I think that and you've seen that in terms of some of the the advertising campaigns that other major news organizations have done all the TV or a lot of the TV networks certainly CNN and NBC have done things that are that are sort of responding in a kind of oblique way to the president's rhetoric and I and I do think that there is a line there I try not to take a lot of public opinions on things that that are really the only time I do it is something something is really like very personal to me and even then certainly not anything that there would ever be a political fight about and and I and I've started to see I think some more of my friends colleagues uh people you know who I'm Facebook friends with sometimes post things that are a little bit more political than they would have a couple years ago and and generally expressing dismay in some way with the administration or or Congress or uh the fight over uh, Justice Kavanaugh, like all those things, are really, uh, I think, coming into the, in, into awareness a bit more. And I think it's just that there is a level of frustration with the media that that you know we're not able to pull ourselves out of this back and forth with the president. That uh, you know, uh, uh, most people have gone into this field because they want to tell stories and help people. Um, and that when that it's hard to do that when you feel like you're constantly under attack and you have to the other thing you have to keep in mind about media in general is just that in a lot of ways it's been a really hard like decade and a half I mean when I graduated was right as the newspaper industry was contracting severely you know I was going to ask you about that yeah and at the same time there's a lot of uh, you know new digital outlets popping up that have small budgets for the most part um, don't have you know robust HR operations and things like that, um, and that they're all those like pressures of just like the company you work for has been sold three times. You know, the, like the LA Times, you know, went through a whole bunch of different leadership. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in, in in months, every couple months, they were getting a new editor, and then they finally got a new owner who seems to be 
a, a form that I'm <laughs> I'm very grateful to, which is the benevolent billionaire, uh, you know, paying for a, a not very profitable uh, kind of work to be done. Uh, and and that that I mean, you see it in a lot of places. The Washington Post, the Atlantic is now you know being bought by Lorraine Powell Jobs. Uh, you know, and I think we're probably going to see more in that uh, Time magazine was just bought by Mark Benioff. Like, that is a direction things are going in. But at a lot of those other places that have not been bought by billionaires, they are still cutting staff. And they are cutting staff from already historic low levels. You know, they have already cut into the bone. They're, like, you know, like yeah. getting all the way through the bone now. And they're just at the point of, of, of having – and so even when there are people who are really talented – uh, they may not have the resources to do the travel that's necessary to write th- yeah. the story or to get all the documents and to pay all the fees and sure. to justify those kinds of things. And that's just sort of an unfortunate reality yeah. that has not gone away. And we weren't, uh, we haven't talked about international journalism. A lot of international bureaus have been cut over the years. But even, right. it, I think, in this last campaign, I wonder if some of the cutbacks in the newsrooms prevented journalistic organizations from really understanding what was going on in in um, the, the, the in America outside of the major cities where the, the bureaus were, were based. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, that to some extent there was um, that the way that, that that kind of reporting has worked in the past is that the people from the coast do parachute in to do, you know, not just the can- the direct candidate coverage stories, but to go, you know, sit at a diner or whatever kind of cliche place and and talk to people there. And I and I don't know. I think that there were certainly efforts to do a lot of that. I think there was also just, um, you know, a sense that what how, how many anecdotes add up to something actually being true, and you really need the proof of the voting, and that people weren't necessarily. I mean, I think that in some of the polling people weren't necessarily telling the truth to the pollsters or to somebody yeah. they interviewed who was interviewed. Um, and, and so I think that, that, that all of those things kind of mixed in. But I do, I do think that news organizations, it's very expensive to travel with a candidate on a, like if it's somebody who's uh, running like first time for president and is not an incumbent president to run, to fly on their charter flights can be it's thousands and thousands of dollars a day to fly on air force one each leg of those flights is also thousands of dollars um you know if you go on a foreign trip with the president and you fly on the press chartered flight it could be sixty thousand dollars for a week-long trip before you add in hotels and any other expenses wow and so those are barriers for even some of the major newspapers. Yeah. Um, TV networks just spend and spend and spend, <laughs> it seems to me. Uh, somebody observing, you know, oh, wait, there are 10 NBC people on this trip, you know. But, uh, you know, it's so that's a little bit different. But, uh, but I'm fascinated. You've described kind of two models for journalism, one where it's cutting to the bone and deeper, um, fewer and fewer resources being put to it, and then the other being almost a kind of, um, for lack of a better word, philanthropic journalism where big big money comes in and, and is, 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 is viewing it as a pub- public service. Yeah. So given those two, do you see, where do you see the future well, going? Well, I mean, I think that, there is, that, that a lot of the people are not, who are doing that are not thinking of it only as a, as a philanthropic service, that there certainly is uh, some kind of, you know, financial pressure there, that there is an expectation. I think, I think, I mean, I think the Washington Post is, seems to have said that in some way and put out some public information about doing well. 
uh, financially and, you know, that maybe it takes the seed money of somebody who can kind of give an organization a jolt. And then once you have that jolt, you can kind of run on it yourself. Journalism still remains in, in some context a very viable business model. I, I, I wouldn't want to suggest otherwise. Right. But it Certainly. is interesting to see it shaking out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Bloomberg is a good example of, of that. Yeah. Um, given all this, would you advise young seniors today to go into journalism? I don't know. I mean, people were a lot of people were discouraging me when I was in college from from going into journalism. And I just felt like it was the only thing I could do. It was the only it was the only thing I could imagine waking up every morning and figuring out my day around. Um, And the great thing about it is that really every day is different just about. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of days just sitting at the White House and uh, following the president's schedule. So some of those days are get kind of routine, but then there's a press conference that goes on for 90 minutes and it changes, it shakes things up a little bit. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, it's it's a hard choice. I mean, I think that you need to be passionate about kind of the the abstract ideas around journalism, the storytelling. And then I think you it's helpful, I think, to be passionate about a specific area, policy area, um, you know, type of story. So whether you want to be, you know, a magazine feature writer or that you, you know, want to tell, you want, you want to dive into healthcare policy and this is how you see yourself doing that. Um, I think it, it's hard from a financial point of view. Um, it's not, you know, if you, if you go to Princeton, you will not be, and you graduate from Princeton 10 years, 20, 10 years out, you might be making around the same as some of your former classmates, but you might be, you know, falling behind within a few years of that. And so you have to think about if that, that is okay for your life. Um, I I mean, there's a lot of talk now in the media about, um, you know, internships and, whether the there are there are huge barriers to entry for people who you know can't afford to do even I, I don't think that there are really a lot of unpaid internships around anymore but things that don't pay that well uh that those are all kind of d- difficult things to deal with i should say if you don't know uh that just this year the entire faculty voted to uh, formalize the princeton journalism program here and we now have a new certificate. That wasn't there when, when, when you were a student. I'm really, really curious to know how you got started because I have to say uh, you've had a meteoric career coming out of Princeton to the White House in, in, in 10 years or less, uh, significantly less because you yeah. started there more than, more than a year ago. Yeah, well, I actually started covering the Obama White House back in, uh, I think, 2011. So I was, it was pretty cool. I think I spent my 26th birthday on Air Force One. So that was pretty cool. But I think I also spent my 31st birthday or 32nd birthday on Air Force One. So Mm -hmm. it's a little different than you're Mm -hmm. you're a little more jaded by then. Um, But, uh, you know, it it was the prince. It was the prince. It was being part of the daily newspaper, which I did because I wanted to write as much as possible. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I thought I wanted to see my, my work in magazines more than even newspapers at that point. And then I got an internship at, at um, kind of a mid-sized daily summer after my freshman year doing like metro reporting in Westchester County, New York. And that sort of just got me more addicted to it. And then it was it was just a cycle from there. And, th- and then I just couldn't stop. 
Um, and here I am all these years later. That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Jen Thank Epstein, you for very having much. Me. And um, if you want to read more of Jen's work, uh, what is the proper website to go to? Uh, Bloomberg.com or Bloomberg.com slash politics will probably have you coming upon more of my stories. Um, or if you just Google me on my Twitter page, Jen Epps, J-E-N-E-P-S, um, first you can see my Twitter, and which is mostly political, but like a little bit of just, you know, sarcasm. Um, and I also have a link there uh, that goes to the page with all of my stories. Great. And thanks also to Danielle Alio for producing, recording, and editing this episode of She Roars. I'm Margaret Koval, and we'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.